You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. Hypoglycemia is a limiting factor preventing many motivated patients with diabetes from achieving near-normal blood glucose levels. What do we need to know to help our patients avoid and treat hypoglycemia? Joining us to discuss hypoglycemia is endocrinologist and professor of medicine at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine in Albuquerque, Dr. Patrick Boyle. Dr. Boyle, welcome to ReachMD. Thanks for having me, Dr. Elman. Well, let's start with defining hypoglycemia and how often does it occur? Maybe we can split up the difference between type 1 and type 2. So the definition is sort of uniform. It's actually something that's a symptom of hypoglycemia associated with a measured low glucose concentration and it resolves with treatment with glucose ingestion. So for the clinical trials, the usual definition is a glucose of and it varies from trial to trial, but at least less than 70. But I think technically, you know, when we look back to the diabetes control and complication trials, for instance, is a glucose less than 50. And so for type 1s and type 2s, same definition. Uh, how often does it occur? It's really a, an issue for the type 1s that can be, if they're doing a good job of controlling their glucose, it could be as often as three, four, five times a week, even at a low level meaning that it is at a level where they can take care of it. And in the type 2s, with more intensive treatment schedules, and of course, depending on which medications are being used in combination with them, in the type 2s, it's probably something that shouldn't be happening more than maybe weekly. Are there differences between the defenses in someone with type 1 diabetes and those with type 2? But you might want to just answer it in general first. Well, the defense mechanisms are the same in both type 1s and type 2s. It's which ones are more operative in either group of patients. The major defense mechanism is to decrease insulin concentrations in the body, and this is where the two diseases differ, obviously, quite significantly. The type 1s, if they get a low glucose concentration, they're low because there was too much insulin injected underneath their skin for a given meal, whereas for the type 2s, they have this built-in release valve, I guess, if you want to refer to it that way, where it protects them from getting a low blood sugar because they end up with an ability to shut down endogenous insulin production. So even if they may have temporarily injected a little bit too much insulin, which would usually be the reason they've gotten low, they then can shut down their own internal insulin production and limit the reaction. And then there are a series of redundant hormonal mechanisms that prevent the hypoglycemia from getting worse and allowing the patient to recuperate from that low. The first of the major uh, hormones is glucagon, and then the second one would be epinephrine or adrenaline. Glucagon's interesting in the type 1s because over time they become relatively deficient in the glucagon response to low blood sugars. They still make glucagon, and it's not as though their alpha cells are involved in the autoimmune event that caused their type 1 diabetes, but the alpha cells become dysfunctional and don't get the message that the systemic blood sugar is dropped and they should do something about it by raising glucagon concentration. The type 2s can have some of that same defect in glucagon secretion. Uh, but it's not as profound as in the type 1s. 
the epinephrine secretion issue is uh, a backup plan, basically, when the glucagon becomes relatively deficient, if it does, and it'll tell the liver to make more sugar that's either been stored as glycogen or to cause the production of new glucose through gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis, and that works pretty well in both groups. So basically, the longer you have diabetes, especially type 1, uh, the more at risk you are going to be for a low blood sugar. That's true, uh, and probably for a variety of different reasons. The type 1s, partially because of the glucagon issue, but then also if one strives for really tight control, you lose that epinephrine response also, and it's part of a adaptation which may not necessarily be all that useful, but in the presence of recurring episodes of low glucose concentration, the brain, which runs on sugar only, gets the signal that it's going to have to contend with repeated bouts of hypoglycemia in the future and ends up changing its extraction ability of glucose out of the circulation. So all that means is that once the brain's been exposed to a couple of episodes of hypoglycemia, it decides it's going to fix this situation. And probably, at least in the animal studies and some of the human studies, shows that it increases its extraction, the percent that it takes out of the circulation, even at a low blood sugar. And so what it means then is that the brain has a relatively normal blood sugar concentration, despite the fact that the peripheral blood glucose concentration be quite low. So when the brain gets enough sugar, then the body doesn't need the signal to fight it off, and the brain is directing that epinephrine response, and it just doesn't happen. Yeah, I was going to ask you that, you know, why is it that some patients pass out and, you know, go into a seizure um, at 55, and others, they can go down to 25, 30, and, and not be that out of it? It really all relates back to this brain glucose handling issue, and the more frequently that one challenges your brain with a low blood sugar concentration, the better it's going to get at being able to resolve that problem. So we see it most commonly, as I said, in people that are striving for tighter control. It can actually, though, occur in people that are not all that well controlled and having a lot of up and down in their glucose concentrations. And so they, even though they may have an average hemoglobin A1C that's way above our target, if they're having several hypos a week as part of their poor control, then they're set up to do this adaptation in brain metabolism. The other thing is that if one lives at a very high glucose concentration for uh, even three or four or five days, the brain gets the sense that it's going to have a continuous supply of glucose, and so it will respond to a relatively higher glucose concentration for telling you that you feel like you're having a low. So as an example, somebody that's been running blood sugars at 225, 300 all week long now gets a glucose down around 100, and all of a sudden the brain says, geez, this is really not going to be a sufficient amount of sugar for me because I'm used to seeing 300. But that can be turned around within a period of three or four days also of much better glucose control. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman, and I am speaking with Dr. Patrick Boyle. We are discussing hypo glycemia. What are the areas of therapy that can limit our patients from developing severe hypoglycemia? Well, I think we're particularly talking about type 2 diabetes now. It used to be that the conventional therapy for type 2 wasn't a whole lot different than type 1. It was really insulin. Nowadays, we have oral agents that don't produce low glucose concentration like metformin or like the thiazolidine dions, and when those two drugs are used in combination, there's no hypoglycemia. There may be other side effects, but 
not hypoglycemia. The sulfonylureas and insulin are the things that really promote the low glucose concentrations. And so you've seen on the most recent iterations of the ADA consensus algorithm, for instance, that gliburide is no longer a preferred compound because it produces about an eightfold increased risk of hypoglycemia compared to other sulfonylureas. So that would be one way of limiting hypo is by switching away from that very long-acting sulf. But on the flip side of it, it would be best if we could decide on therapies that had no potential for hypoglycemia. And I really think that's where we're going now is to use metformin, thiazolidine, dions, and use them in conjunction possibly with an FDA-approved class of medications, which are the GLP-1 agonists like exenatide. So if one fails to have adequate control on metformin and thiazolidine dion, then the next non-hypoglycemia-producing agent would be the addition of exenatide injection. Yeah, and you could say TZDs, Pat, because you're going to get tongue-tied if you keep saying thiazolidine dions. And and I want to remind uh, our listeners that, yeah, the GLP-1 agonists, you know, we have exenatide, uh, soon to have leerglutide, and, and don't forget the DPP-4 inhibitor, citagliptin, also called uh, Genuvia, I agree with you. Why use a medication that causes weight gain and the potential for hypoglycemia when we're really trying to get our patients under tight control? Well, why do we need more studies to look at hypoglycemia? You know, you get lower, you don't. Well, I think the mechanisms are all reasonably well understood at this point. I think that the studies that we need in order to convince the practicing population of either primary care or endocrine docs that this is the right way to be going would be outcomes investigations. And we don't have that. I think that's where the ADA consensus panel came down on this well-validated therapies idea of adding a sulfonylurea or insulin to metformin failures was that those drugs have been around for decades now. It doesn't necessarily, I think, mean that they're better. And as you point out, and I do too, that hypoglycemia is not a great uh, endpoint for therapy. On the other hand, I'd like to see a trial that proved that in a head-to-head fashion you could use that ADA consensus panel and beat it in terms of prevention of retinopathy or nephropathy and limit the hypoglycemia. And so that might take a fairly good-sized study, and I know that one of those has been funded by the American Diabetes Association and is ongoing right now. Yeah, we, we definitely need to study that more because as we push our patients to get near normal blood sugars, hypoglycemia is becoming an issue. Well, how does continuous glucose monitoring factor in? Well, I think it's really helped us a great deal, this continuous monitoring ability. I think that not only is it educational for the patients to see what happens to their postprandial glucose concentrations when we're using some of these agents, particularly the glyptin compounds or the GLP-1 agonists, but I think also with a type 1 diabetes patient, it allows us to uncover low blood sugars that the patient really was not suspecting. And particularly, I find it happening during the middle of the night. It's the most vulnerable time for somebody to get a low glucose concentration. So uh, we in the DCCT saw that about 60% of the severe hypoglycemias, those episodes requiring the assistance of somebody else or that resulted in loss of consciousness and a seizure, most of those, 60%, happened between midnight and four o'clock in the morning. So the continuous glucose sensing gives you that opportunity and in certain of these systems, the sensor or the alarm for it is sufficiently sensitive enough that it'll actually warn the patient that a drop is occurring and it can prevent them from getting low rather than just recording that it's getting low and then we find out when we download the sensor later. Yeah, as you know, uh, I have type 1 diabetes and I wear a CGM device and just last night, about 3 o'clock, woke me up and uh, 
I was able to drink my little uh, carton of juice without going down to the fridge and eating everything in sight because I never really got that low. I got to below 70. One of the controversies through the years have been uh, at the Department of Motor Vehicles. Should I be allowed to drive my Porsche home? Yes, you should. But I know you're well-controlled and you've got a sensor on. And I think that most of us recommend that when they're going to do something that's a little bit riskier, like driving a car you probably do need to be measuring more frequently. Well, I'd like to thank our guest, endocrinologist and professor of medicine in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Dr. Patrick Boyle. Dr. Boyle, thanks so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Uh, Okay. Well... GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess in a way it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.